0: Welcome to the Prioritizing Prevention Translating Science to Practice podcast. Our goal is to prioritize prevention conversations that matter. Our topic for today is the role of prevention in equity and justice with special guest executive director Tracy Maxwell Hurd. Now here's our host, Holly Raffel.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion second podcast episode. This is season one, episode two. I'm Holly Raffel, the faculty director of the Center, and I am so pleased to have Tracy Maxwell Heard, the executive director of Multi-Ethnic Advocates for Cultural Competence, with us today. Ms. Hurd graduated from Akron with a Bachelor of Arts in Mass Media Communication. She served as a member of the Ohio House of Representatives for the 26th District, which includes parts of Franklin County from 2007 to 2014 as both majority leader and minority leader and was the first African American woman to hold the majority leader position in addition to her legislative experience she served as a regional corporate sales manager UAW member news anchor and nonprofit executive director she has advocated for women and girls as a nonprofit founder board member delta sigma theta sorority rem- member and a lifetime member of the NAACP again I am so excited to welcome you, Tracy, here today to discuss health equity. Glad to be here. So, as you know, the Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion really values health equity. As someone who has done health equity work in a variety of contexts, including as a behavioral health prevention and promotion leader, your insight into health equity is essential to understanding what we can do to create a healthier and more equitable Ohio. In fact, as a state legislature, you once said, responsibility as a citizen goes beyond just showing up on election day how satisfied you are or are not with the representative government that represents you directly depends on how involved you are. So in what ways do you
0: feel that civic responsibility connects to health equity? This is uh, such an important conversation that's happening right now, and I'm really excited to be having it with you guys here today. Um, So in what ways does civic responsibility impact health equity? Well, I think it's pretty much the same as any other issue. You know, if health equity is an issue that's of importance to you, then you need to educate yourself on the policies and procedures, or more importantly, the lack thereof, um, to ensure that health ac- equity is a goal that has the possibility of being realized. You know, for example, the primary challenge that we found in health equity is primarily it's a statement and not an actual policy or procedure with quantifiable data. Um, specifically for BIPOC community, Black, Indigenous, people of color. Um, you need to demonstrate the existence of the need, the location of the marginalized populations, et cetera, to actually achieve that. You know, MAC is currently partnered with Central State University, uh, Mental, he- Mental Health Addiction Advocates Coalition, and Ohio University on a data research project that's looking at three areas of focus that are affecting health equity, workforce treatment and funding. And... In those reports, we're addressing challenges that exist in those areas through a series of reports um, entitled behavioral health equity in Ohio, improving data, moving toward racial and ethnic equity. And those are posted, the first two have been released already and are posted on um, our website website at macinc.net. Um, so if there is an equity, you have to define and quantify it and make recommendations for solutions. You know, it's interesting that in every area where, um, there's disparity or inequity, creating or working toward equity is a win-win for the overall community, you know, from a cost savings perspective or economic increase for communities, however you wanna look at it. So there's no justifiable reason really for inequity except to maintain a power or economic imbalance for a specific population. So, you know, long and short of it, it's the same process, regardless of the subject. You have to get in the game, be vocal, have expectations and consequences, for those who represent those issues and hold them accountable. Thank you so much, Tracy. What are the
1: biggest health equity challenges that you see are facing Ohio's behavioral health prevention and promotion system?
0: I think it's the lack of understanding of how critically important cultural competence, training and education are in those areas that I just mentioned, you know, workforce, treatment, funding, um, because, without that understanding of the role that cultural competence plays into that, you never get fundamentally to the source of why we have inequity um, in the first place. So I mean, I think that's, and you know, that's the work that we do every day. It's the drum that I beat every day. So you know, sometimes I feel like a broken record, but it really is just the crux of the matter. It really requires that cultural competence understanding, and not just getting the training, but understanding the value of the training in addressing the problem.
1: Absolutely, and I've been working in Ohio for uh, doing this work for a long time. And I also see a lot of strengths that we have um, when it comes to equity. What are some of those strengths that you think Ohio brings to bear?
0: I think the existence of organizations like MAP to toot our own (laughs) horn, you know, that can provide that training and certification even for the behavioral health community in the space of cultural competence. Um, the fact that the current environment is open to change and this conversation, you know, everything from the governor's wellness workforce initiative, um, again, to the partnered collaboration that we have with our data research project, how that's been received by people in the behavioral health um, sector, by the legislature, by people who are impacted and, um, you know, will need this knowledge and reference. Um and to all of the other efforts that are underway, you know, fundamentally, fundamentally, this is a systemic racism problem. And the fact that we've had a dialogue in that area for the last three years it's just absolutely monumental to me. That we've been able to hold that space um, for address and for change um, is just unbelievable. Usually, when there's a crisis or you know something that we have to address as a society. You know, there's a big hoopla for a week or, you know, maybe there's a march and, you know, we are able to sustain for a month or so. And then it just kind of fades away again. So, you know, this is really a unique opportunity that uh, we have. And I'm certain that success is being achieved because there are so many uh, efforts underway to undermine the work that we're doing all over the country, you know, from eliminating us to to having these conversations eliminating funding in this area, taking it out of conversations um, in our history classes, mm-hmm. um, misrepresenting it as CRT, which has never been taught in a through K-12 classroom in this country. It's a second year law school class. Um, but anyway, so, you know, when you see that kind of pushback, you know that there has to be um, some success underfoot. It's kind of just like that whole voter um, voter engagement thing. You know, when people talk to me about you know, my vote not counting and it doesn't really matter. The system is rigged. You know, the last term that I served in the Ohio House of Representatives, there were 15 voter suppression bills. So I would tell people, it's like, if your vote didn't count, there would not be 15 separate activities underway to try and separate you from or create obstacles to access um, to you accessing the ballot, you know, so yeah. I think they're really this is an exceptional time that we have been able to really hold space around a very difficult and painful conversation in our country and really work towards some solutions. And, you know, it won't happen overnight, but the longer we talk about it, the more we find solutions, the more people that become engaged and the better opportunities for success and inclusion we have. Absolutely. Thank you
1: so much. Ohio is deeply rooted in youth-led prevention. I'm sure you've heard some of the uh, youth-led work that's going on. I know you and I have the privilege of sitting on the Workforce Development Advisory Committee and youth-led has talked about quite a bit. What roles or opportunities do you see for youth-led prevention to play in health equity? Huge opportunity.
0: You know, one of the largest demographics um, of increase in suicide, astronomically, is in our youth population. So, you know, just as our commitment and investment in education is indicative of our future success or failures as a society, you can say the same thing about our commitment and investment in mental health for our young people. You know, where we acknowledge, invest, and succeed or fail determines the health of our future society as a whole. You know, we always say, you know, the young people are our future. Well, they are in every single, um, you know, frame of reference that you want to consider. And the fact that we are failing so critically in this behavioral health, mental health, substance abuse area with our young people, you know, as they're facing such critical things like COVID, like racism, um, is not going to bode well for us as a society in the future. So, yeah, that's an area where we must succeed. Thank you. Ohio is also rich with community-based coalitions um, in a variety
1: of health and mental health areas, but we know that the substance use uh, prevention coalitions um, are a key part of our behavioral health system. So what role do you see community uh, health coalitions um, playing in the
0: equity space? Um, I think they're key. They're kind of like the frontline gatekeepers, you know? Um, We have been involved um, with NAMI in um, delivering mental health first aid programming to uh, our faith communities and community leadership organizations, for that very reason, you know they are the front lines. They are the ones who have the first opportunities to see when people in the community are struggling or in crisis, when people in their congregations are struggling or in crisis. And it's not about you know turning them into therapists, but you know empowering them and giving them the tools to recognize when people are in crisis and have connections to. Resources and services that they can, you know, help them navigate to, you know, um, to receive the services that they need to be healthy and whole. Um, it's also key in that whole destigmatization. Say that word slowly. Um, you know, around the mental health conversation and in cultures, you know, specifically the African American culture. You know, you know, for so many years, you know, you heard in um, many Black conversations and faith conversations, you know, we don't do therapy, we do Jesus, you know. Well, you know, Jesus supports the therapy. So I'm here to tell you. Um, you know, he uses this all as tools and vessels to help one another. So there is not, it's not an either or, it's a both and. So, you know, understanding how different communities and cultures think about, talk about, embrace or reject, um, you know, the whole concept of mental health and, that's the services, you know, around those um, is critical in terms of making sure that people have access and get treatment and get well. And those community organizations are the first ones to impact um, that stigma and to connect people to, to, you know, to be that bridge to services.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. And the audience of our Prioritizing Prevention podcast is always looking for ways to translate science to practice, and that's our tagline. Um, Mm So if you were speaking to those in the prevention and promotion space, how can those individuals create conditions for addressing
0: health equity through their work? Um, Beating the drum again, cultural competence training. You know, it truly is the foundation. And without that dialogue and that education and the training, um, you're never going to get to identifying that there even is inequity, Um, you know, how it costs everyone in society, how that inequity is a cost and a loss for everyone, not just those marginalized populations, Um, and being able to demonstrate the win-win of inclusion, you know, and that's the key because In order to affect change, people have to be willing to move and to shift. And people are very rigid when they feel like loss or they are going to experience a loss in creating space for this whole conversation of inclusion. But that's really not how it it works. You know, creating space is not a diminishing of the pie. It's an expansion of the pie. Um, And the outcome of that really is win-win for everyone um, who has access to the pie. You know, there's not a loss in that. No,
1: Definitely not. And I think uh, just reminding folks of that, right, is just that mm-hmm. the, the, the core of inclusion is everyone. Um, Absolutely helpful. Thank you, uh, Tracy. So you are the executive director of yeah. MAC. And MAC is a clearinghouse yeah. for training, resources, research, best practices, and collaboration, all things cultural, comp- um, cultural competence. Mm-hmm. Um, it also serves as a uh, a leader in the state of Ohio and in the nation on various healthcare related issues. So thank you for that. Um, Could you, for our audience members, how thread the needle between the relationship between cultural competency and health equity?
0: Uh Um, Again, very simplistic. You know, it is the bridge to health equity for everyone. Um, You know, we know that we are Falling short in terms of health equity, just across the board, uh, in terms of service providers, you know where they're located, you know challenges that people have around transportation and you know if they live in rural communities and all of that, doing a better job with telemedicine, whether it's for physical health or mental health. so um, we know that there are challenges that exist already, but those challenges multiply exponentially when you're looking at bipop communities so cultural competence is that bridge because again, it helps to people to understand, first of all, that there is inequity, how that inequity impacts, not just those marginalized communities, but what the cost is to all of us as a society in failing to engage and provide services and uh, treatment and healthy outcomes for those communities as well. Um, and it's where we get again to the fundamentals of inequity and have the opportunity to begin to start working towards unraveling that and creating equity. You know, it's not an overnight process. You know, it's it's something that, you know, we always say it's lifelong learning because, you know, we didn't get here overnight. We're not gonna fix this problem overnight. Um, And this is training that you have to be engaged in, you know, on an annual basis. And, you know, for us, it's an everyday kind of thing because we're looking at impacting and changing systems and systems that were never designed to be inclusive in the first place. So, uh, you know, whether it's health equity or education or whatever system you're looking at, um, the relationship or the purpose of cultural competence is to expand and create space for inclusion and access and better outcomes for everyone to the benefit of everyone.
1: Thank you so much for that explanation, Tracy. And for our listeners, I think it might be helpful um, it's, you could provide an example of what con- cultural competency looks like at the individual level, the organizational level, and then the community level.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it is the same. Um, it, it just requires a continually expanding commitment, you know, from that uh, introspective look and self-education and self-awareness at the individual level to doing the same at the organizational level and looking at, you know, things like what are your policies and procedures? What are your hiring practices? You know, what are your opportunities to access promotion and leadership opportunities? You know, are those universal and um, available to to everyone? Um, You know, what are your, do you have an inclusion or, or an equity statement? And what is your implementation plan to make sure that you meet that and deliver on that? Um, you know, and as a larger society or society as a whole, it's being committed to supporting that for everyone. So, you know, in things that we're doing now, you know, funding, making sure that funding is available for uh, behavioral health uh, practitioners so that they can get that cultural competence training so that they are giving and delivering that uh, that service on the individual level so that organizations are expanding and understanding how to be inclusive and supportive and get, because again, it's the win-win. It's getting the best, you know, reducing the cost of churn because people are leaving, leaving because they're dissatisfied or they're not feeling seen or represented, um, you know, reducing the cost of litigation, um, you know, because of microaggressions or, you know, di- director overt racism, et cetera, setting a standard of what is and isn't acceptable within your organization. Um, so, you know, it, it just, it is the same Uh, Whether you're going from the individual all the way to the the societal level, it's just that expansion of the commitment and making sure that everyone is bought in, you know, you make the decisions, you self-determine as an individual, but you have to make that determination as an organization as well. And as a society, you know, and it goes beyond just making a statement. That's the first step, you know, making a commitment and a statement around equity and inclusion and what, what that means to you as an individual, as an organization, as society, et cetera. Um, you know, for example, racism is a public health crisis. But you have to do more than say that, because when you put that statement out there, you have to respond to that. So understanding it's a crisis, what are you going to do about the crisis? You know, how do you respond to that crisis? Um, you know, there was a very specific car- protocol around COVID. Um, and even then it became a uh, almost like a sub protocol in terms of making sure that BIPOC communities, Rick, we very quickly realized that there was a uh, disparate um, response to you know, the mainstream population and BIPOC communities and access to care, um, you know, hospital beds, the whole nine yards. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's first taking that first step of acknowledgement, commitment, Um, And then figuring out, you know, how you actually actualize and realize that um, so that there is benefit, impact, and change.
1: Thank you so much. And I was just curious, in your experience, what are some of the most common barriers in getting from that acknowledgement and getting to action, right? So what are those barriers? And then what are some of the best ways to overcome those barriers?
0: Uh Um, I think the barriers are ignorance. Lack of understanding, lack of exposure or experience with people who are not like you, um, fear of change. Um, Again, that perception of lack that, you know, in order to include other people and get people access that you're going to do something. Um, And that inability or willingness to see the win-win in it, you know, just being wed to that concept of lack or fear and not being willing to expand your mind to see that, you know, you can make that shift and it not be a personal loss to you. Matter of fact, that there could be an even greater gain in that for you and in allowing inclusion and in that expansion um, of the pie, you know? And so that's where it comes. It takes it back to that education around cultural competence so that people understand and can self-assess and determine, you know, where might I have some blind spots or, um, some biases, you know, because we all do. It's not, you know, that's not, us. no one is an exception to that. Um, so just getting people to the, the point where they have a comfort level at doing that self-assessment to help them get past that ignorance and fear and understanding that it's not a, you're a bad person thing. It is, you know, we're all in the same, we all have biases and we just need to uh, have the skills and the training to be able to uh, recognize them within ourselves, recognize them within our organizations where we're creating a disparity for um, certain populations or uh, genders, whatever demographics, um, and, and, re- and eliminate those, recognizing that in the end, everyone benefits to a greater degree from that. So drum, 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 drum. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. You have to keep beating the drum. I do. I do. And MAC's programs do that, right? Because MAC has a suite of programs that include cultural competence certification, education, strategic development. And in those, you connect the research and practice from an evidence based, you know, program development angle. And that's what I really appreciate. So, as someone leading a statewide organization, what are your thoughts on evidence based practices to guide the work? Um, Absolutely
0: necessary. You know, um, without that credibility um, and proven outcomes and practices, it's challenging to make an argument. You know, uh, you know, I used to say all the time when I was in the legislature, changing hearts and minds is a long game. You know, but when you can make a business case, a fiscal argument, demonstrate through data, um, dem- demonstrate through best practices and how certain changes and adjustments have led to better outcomes. And, you know, you have something that you can present uh, as an example or a model. Um, goes a long way to getting people to hear you, um, consider a change, and be open to um, accepting those adjustments and shifts, in policies, procedures, funding, you know, whatever the ask might be. Um, yeah, because, you know, it, that whole kumbaya, we should do this because it's the right thing to do, um, it's nice. And at the end of the day, you know, it is the right thing to do, but ideologies are not monolithic. You know, so, but the thing that tends to be the closest thing to a monolithic ideology is that fiscal conversation and people, um, you know, even if you don't care about a certain population, understanding that supporting investment in their care um, or their support keeps them out of your pocket, so to speak, you know, from a tax perspective, it empowers them to wholeness and Um, engagement and, you know, being a productive taxpaying citizen, et cetera, you know, so you're not responsible for people who you may or may not have a particular consideration for, and you don't have to be because they are independent and contributing. So, you know, just how you present that information when, um, you know, changing hearts and minds, you don't have time or there is not the willing availability to that conversation. Oh, that's a fascinating concept. The one that I
1: really hadn't thought of directly is that that connection. And I, I do see it in my work as well as that fiscal oh. piece is always coming to the forefront. For sure. Yeah. And I'm just curious, I know Matt has the Understanding uh, Trauma Curriculum and the Racial Equity Framework. So what do you look for when selecting or
0: creating evidence-based work? Well, I guess that's pretty easy. Yeah, uh, you know, the opportunity to measure impact or demonstrate change. Um, you know, that's, that's the point of that. That's the point of evidence-based work uh, is helping you get people connected to, interested in, or willing to engage in that training activity, et cetera. Um, because you can measure the impact. You can show them You know, just like having a diverse uh, uh, board, you know, corporate board has demonstrated a positive impact in the bottom line for organizations that have uh, created space for more women, more minorities, et cetera. Bottom line has expanded. Um, It's the same thing with cultural competence. Um, You know, inclusion creates, and it's because you have more people from the overall society at your table, and you know, informing your service, product, um, you know, delivery of whatever it is you're trying to either uh, be a benefit to society or make money on either way. Um, and it also expands your market share. You know, So many times when we're dealing on the corporate side with people, it comes down to, it's like, are you aware that you're not even benefiting at all from a certain demographic because you don't see them as valuable or having interest in your product or your service, et cetera. Um, You know, same thing on the behavioral health side in in that health equity space, um, you know, there is a loss. And unfortunately, the loss is not just in terms of you being able to demonstrate a a broader service um, or engagement um, with a broader spectrum of your population. Um, But, you know, when you're talking about health equity, the loss can be as devastating as death. You know, I mean, it can go from, hey, I just, I'm just not going to go. I'm just going to deal with this myself to, you know, people who are really dealing with extreme substance abuse issues or extreme mental health issues who haven't found uh, services to connect with because they don't see anyone that looks like them there. The literature that they hand out is not representative of the entire population. You know, and that's a big part of what we do is help organizations identify. Who is in your footprint? Who are you responsible for delivering service to? Because if you don't know that you have a 15% Hispanic population and you have no one that speaks the language on your staff, no one from the community or culture, it doesn't have to be 100% one-on-one match um, because you know that's the point of the cultural competence training. It's for everyone so that when there is not that person who looks just like them. A language barrier you can't get around. There has to be someone that speaks the language. But, you know, from those cultural norms of things, it's about understanding and experience and exposure and respect and understanding how to approach those people and who can approach them, um, you know, that, that creates that space for the best outcome for the community and for your organization.
1: You know, Tracy, you've been talking a lot about um, what we see embodied in the culturally and linguistically appropriate services or class standards. So I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on bringing a standards-based approach to work in cultural competence?
0: Um, uh, Again, invaluable, you know, having best practices and, you know, guidelines, you know, that's kind of what the class standards are, you know, guidelines to help people see where they might have blind spots. Um, and where they have the opportunity to create to create equity in their approaches to um, their patients and their clients, um, where there may they may have biases, um, you know that's really what the class standards are trying to get at, you know. So it's just telling people to do better or be better, you know, doesn't work. You have to give them some direction. You have to give them some guidelines. Help them understand what it is they may be doing. Um, that creates barriers to other people that they otherwise would be able to get and deliver service to. Um, you know, most of the time what we find is people are not intentionally exclusive. Um, you know, bias does not equal racism. You know, that's about experience, exposure, upbringing, et cetera, does not make you bad. Um, you know, we always say we... They're in extreme situations, you know, you there are just some people that you cannot impact and change. There has to be a willingness and availability to that. But for most of the people that we encounter and most of the organizations that we deal with, it's just about creating a safe space and a comfortable space for them to have honest engagement and conversation and be able to receive information, education, and training um, so that they do not feel victimized And you trying to eliminate victimization for other people, you know, making someone feel bad or turning them into the bad guy is not going to get you where you want to be. You know, this is about understanding and education and expansion. Um, It's not about beating up on people um, for things that existed long before they were ever here that, you know, we all have been impacted by. Thank you so much for that perspective. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to
1: circle back to that groundbreaking study that you discussed at the beginning. Um, so I know that was a partnership between Matt Central okay. State University, um, Mental Health Addiction Advocacy Coalition at Ohio University. And, and you all were focused on researching the disparity of access to mental and behavioral health care experience by different racial groups at Ohio. Um, you described the series of studies as we want to ensure that every Ohioan who needs mental health or substance use support is considered and has access, and not just access, but access to care that provides the best chance for whole recovery or the best possible outcome.
0: Okay. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So the first report was issued earlier this year, and a lot of our listeners saw that in the Ohio News Now, um, and um, it was just exciting. I, see, I saw it on many of the listservs kind of repeated over and over again. So it's got a lot of flags. And the initial yeah. findings though um, are, suggest the outcomes that uh, that need to be addressed, right? Marginalized people face barriers, including access right. to culturally competent care, provide our racial bias, stigma, when seeking help or support. So why is it important to have this data from this study with respect to these barriers?
0: Because change won't happen without that information. You know, we knew just in conversations, you know, like the advisory council that you and I serve on and all of the number of different um, boards and councils that we sit on, this was a conversation that just kept bubbling up, you know, about data, you know, can't find data. The data is aggregated. The data is not Ohio specific. It's, you know, national data. Um, And then when you're looking at marginalized BIPOC communities, it's just not segregated out to where you can look at what those specific needs are or even identify where the people exist. So, you know, we're looking at things like, you know, for the workforce, what is the racial composition of our behavioral health workforce? Where are they located geographically? You know, this is the data that we're trying to get at. Um, And in so many instances, we find out it's not there, it's not complete, it's not uniform. You know, looking at uh, our licensing boards, who were great at partnering with us and sharing what they collected and how they collected it. Um, Some collected race, some didn't. Um, Some collected uh, geographic location, but it was where they lived, not where they worked. So, you know, we weren't able to identify, okay, so I live in Cleveland Heights, but I work in um, Twinsburg. So where you live doesn't help us identify if we're making matches in communities with workforce. Understanding who your service population is, you know, what is the composition where you live? You know, we break it down by zip code where we can, you know, in our reports in terms of where the workforce is. Um, So in looking at data like, you know, suicides, Um, you know, where the increases are in communities and where these communities are around the state? And is there a workforce available for them in these areas to be responsive to their needs? So, I mean, it all comes down to the numbers and to information. And without that, we don't have the ability to make the argument or just to demonstrate the need to even make a request for an adjustment around workforce treatment or funding. So that's why, you know, the the data in this As in, you know, data and anything that you're looking at, it's absolutely critical in uh, making the case that people being able to connect and understand.
1: Thank you. We at the center have been focused on uh, creating a diversity impact statement, and to do that, we pulled a lot of data, um, you know, with the credentialing board, looking at, you know, what does the prevention force look like, and. Uh, so to that end, I just have a question is, why is cultural, racial and linguistic representation so important in prevention in all of our behavioral health workforce?
0: I think the best way to answer this, one of our partners, um, Joan England, who is the executive director of um, Mental Health Addiction Advocate Coalition. Um, she responded to this at an interview and I thought it was just spot on. You know, we all understand why women default to and often require a female OBGYN. You know, um, she's another woman. She has the same body I do. Um, she may often have some of the same issues that I do or certainly understands the, the challenges that I have, the issues that I go through as a woman, especially, you know, through the evolution of life as a woman and, you know, all of the different uh, changes that we face. That's clear. Everybody gets that. Well, it's the same thing when you're looking at the cultural and racial side of that, and linguistic side of that. You know, it is about being seen, being recognized, and being understood. Um, not that someone who doesn't look like me can't see me and understand me, but they certainly have to um, strive to do that. So you have to have some framework or some training to be able to educate yourself about who I am. What the, um, what specific challenges, you know, social determinants of health I may have that other populations you serve do not and be able to address them either personally or through other team members on your staff, Um, you know, people being, seeing people who look like them, being approached by people who speak their language, if, you know, English is not their first language or if they're not um, specifically proficient in that gives a letter of level of comfort and even welcoming. Okay. There's someone here. They took the time to make sure there was someone here that I could communicate with. That means that I'm important in this space because they've made space for me, you know, in, in this office, in this, uh, in this community. So people are more forthcoming in terms of giving information that you need to help them. Um, they're more responsive in returning for treatment, you know, whatever that treatment protocol is, and staying engaged with them with that treatment protocol. So ultimately, they get a better, fuller outcome from that. So, you know, that's why all of that whole continuum is so critical from the initial approach all the way through to the potential for success and um, their treatment outcome is having those cultural, racial, and linguistic representations as part of that Um, access and continuum of care.
1: When you're to the point where we can kind of look back on the study, the study has been completed, all four reports have been released. What do you hope the impact of this work will be on health equity in Ohio?
0: Change, inclusion, Uh, yeah. I mean, we are, at the end of this, we are seeking to seat a, a task force to receive the recommendations that we put forward at the end of every report. Um, And we're looking for this to be comprised of, you know, all uh, stakeholders in this, from the legislature to behavioral health providers to people with lived experience, um, you know, all across the spectrum here, to receive these recommendations and identify, you know, who should, who at the table should respond to these? You know, is it Medicaid? Is it the Adams boards? You know, is it the legislature? Because they you know, hold the purse strings, manage the budget. Um, Because in doing this work, you know, over what will at that point be two years and maybe even beyond, we don't have the authority to direct or insist that anyone do anything that's in our reports. So that's why the task force is so critical in this as an end result of this, so that we can get buy-in. And in getting buy-in so that we can get Response and change um, in policies, procedures, funding, workforce, treatment—the whole nine yards. Um, so, yeah, that's it. Getting—we're hoping that this leads to change and ultimately inclusion and better, better outcomes for BIPOC community.
1: And to break down one level uh, more specific, our listeners come from you know Ohio's prevention community. Many of them are prevention specialists. Um, What would you say to the prevention specialists about where they fit into Health
0: Equity in Ohio? Um, They're the linchpin. Um, They're the ones that determine if it gets delivered and implemented or not. They are the front line. So if we don't get buy-in from um, the providers and the prevention specialists and the people who do the work, basically, we don't stand a chance of change or inclusion. So. Uh, they're absolutely critical to this. And that's why, you know, we, um, we've we had a um, an advisory council as we've been going through this as well, where we have been sharing, you know, what we're doing, you know, as we're moving through our reporting stages and, you know, asking them if there's anything that we're missing. Is there something else you want us to consider? Which is what's led to us understanding that once we get to December of this year, there's likely going to be a part two, assuming there's funding for that. Because there are, we can't, you know, you can't do it all. Even in two years and four reports, you just can't address everything. So there were some things that we could work in because, you know, they were, um, you know, nexus or tangential to things that we had already identified for these um, initial four reports. But for those that really were to fit or would require too much expansion of one specific report, you know, we're keeping track of all of that. So that, you know, assuming we can, you know, raise funding for a phase two of this after December of this year, then we can begin to take on those things as well. So it's not just about what we see and what we think. You know, We have been very intentional and deliberate about reaching out to any and everyone who would engage us as we went through this process, um, because you know we, we can't do it without them. It doesn't happen without them. It's just a report collecting dust on someone's shelf without them.
1: Absolutely. And Tracy, you've demonstrated throughout this podcast episode, the commitment of taking uh, a affirmation or an idea or a research report or a evidence-based program policy or practice and turn it into action. And oh, just your commitment rings through and everything that you have said. And I really appreciate taking you taking your time to share your wisdom, your experience, and your public service with us. So... Um, before we let you go, our audience members huh? love to hear our fun wrap-up question that you've given us so much <laughs> to think about. Uh, it's just a nice way for our listeners who are either on a walk or you're know, doing some self-care uh, right now in their cars. Um, so I have three questions for you. Okay. Uh, would you rather attend a sporting event or a theater
0: event? Theater. I grew up in theater.
1: Um, So if you had a choice where you could never wait in line for the rest of your life, or you could never um, hit a red light, so all the red lights would be green for Tracy Maxwell Heard, what would you pick?
0: Wait in line. Never wait in line.
1: And finally, our listener's favorite question, you're reaching into that candy dish and you're choosing M&Ms.
0: Are you choosing plate or peanut? Plain. You know, I'm weird about peanuts. I'm weird about food combinations in general. I'm not one of those like food can't touch, but I love every kind of nut there is on the planet, but don't put it in my candy, my brownies, and don't shave it over my green beans. I'll eat them by themselves, but you know, I don't want them as part of something else. So yeah, plain for sure. Thank you so much, Tracy,
1: for your commitment to health equity you know, in Ohio. Uh, this has been such a fun podcast and I always leave, you know, wanting to have more and more conversations. So I'm grateful to serve alongside you on the Workforce uh, Development Advisory Committee. Same. And I think there's probably many more chances for our intersections this time on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for all of our listeners out there, uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Prioritizing Prevention, Translating to Science and Practice. You can find us on YouTube or wherever your favorite podcast channel is.
0: This has been the Prioritizing Prevention Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, Apple Music, and many more. This program is funded by Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And for more information about us, please visit prevention.coe.ohio.gov. Thank you for listening.